Thanks, Daniel. Thanks, Jay. Worship team. Good morning. How are we doing? Good. Great. Somewhere in between? Something? Ah, I don't know. Hey, it's good to see you either way, and I'm glad you're here. If you're visiting with us and like this is your first time here, uh, just especially honored to have you with us today. And uh, we're in the Gospel of John in chapter 20, uh, as Daniel just read, and we've made it to one of the most powerful parts of the story, which I'm super excited about. Um, I want to say again what I've been saying over the last few weeks, just to kind of reiterate like what's so cool about this, is we've been in the Gospel of John. It'll actually take us two years to finish it. I've, I went back and looked at the calendar. We started in January of 2020, and so we'll finish just before the Christmas series this year. So we spent the majority of 2020 and 2021 uh, in the Gospel of John, and when we finish in a few weeks, we will have read together the entire Gospel uh, out loud together. And so that's just a cool part of what we're doing as we go through uh, the Gospel of John together. Uh, before we step into this resurrection scene, I want to talk for just a minute about a connection that, that you may be having a hard time making. Uh, so let me say it this way. So I don't know why you came to church today, and I don't mean that in an offensive way. I just don't know. Like, I would love to think that you're all here because you're excited about Jesus and excited about seeing one another, and maybe there's a few of you that are. That's great. Um, some of us are here today um, out of routine. This has become the thing we do, and to not be here today would indicate that something is wrong, so we're here because this is what we do, and it doesn't mean that you're not glad that you're here and that there's not some uh, excitement about being here, but this has become so part of like who you are and what you do, that's why you're here. But there are others who are here today who've come into this space hoping to encounter God in a very specific way. Like you've come into this space with needs, and maybe, maybe those needs are loneliness, and you're just hoping that by coming to church you're going to make some connections, maybe make some new friendships, and you're just hoping to like meet some people, okay? Maybe you've come in today and you're just dealing with like some internal struggles and battles that you haven't even like articulated to anybody else like your coworkers wouldn't even know maybe even your family doesn't even know what you're struggling with on the inside maybe there's some depression or anxiety or doubt or fears and just some things you're wrestling with and so you're you're, you're hoping that God will meet you in that today um, and maybe you've come in today and you're really sad maybe you just had a really sad week maybe maybe even grieving the loss of something or someone that matters a lot to you um, you know, even if they haven't passed away, maybe there's a broken relationship that you're grieving right now. You're just really sad about it. And so you've come into this space hoping that somehow you would hear a message or a song or a Bible verse that will, that will meet you where you are. And, and on top of that, though, as we step into this passage today about the resurrection, I think there's a lot of us who fail to see the connection between the resurrection and our everyday needs. And so in the church, we come in week after week, and we kind of recirculate this story of death, burial, and resurrection, and we know it's important. We know it's an important part of the gospel story, but many of us fail to recognize what it has to do with our everyday lives and our deepest needs. And so as we talk about the resurrection today, we're going to encounter three different people who come to the empty tomb uh, for multiple reasons, different reasons. We're going to see that the reason that, that Peter and John come to the tomb is different from the reason that Mary has come to the tomb, and that's okay. But what we're also going to see is not just the significance of the resurrection from like a historical and a theological perspective, but we're going to see the significance of the resurrection on a relational level, and how the, the resurrection of Jesus is intimately connected to him meeting you where you are today. Regardless of the reasons why you came, the resurrection is the message that you need to hear today. And so, let me back up for just a minute, and let's talk about the reality of what just happened 
uh, before the verses that, that Daniel just read. So, over the last two weeks, we've been dealing with the reality of Jesus' death and burial, like the details of it. Last week, we were looking at how uh, Joseph and Nicodemus go to Pilate. Joseph goes to Pilate, gets the body of Jesus. This, it's, it's a real body. It's a, it's, a, it's a human body that's not breathing. The heart has ceased to beat. And he and Nicodemus take this body and wrap it with like myrrh and aloes and then wrap it in linen and they bury it in a real tomb and cover it with a stone. And it's really dark and lifeless inside that tomb. The week before we talked about the reality of Jesus' final moments, how on the cross he said some really significant things. Uh, the Gospel of Luke records that at, at that final moment, Jesus says, as he's looking up to heaven, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he breathes his last. And the Gospel of John adds to this, this statement of it is now finished, or it is now fulfilled, or it has now come to pass. And so we've seen a real close detailed encounter or account of Jesus's death that there was a moment where he was breathing and there was a moment where he ex exhaled his last breath and his heart quit beating and his organs began to shut down his brain activity ceased and that very real body was buried in a dark cold lifeless tomb and what has just happened before John chapter 20 is that there was a moment where that heart began to beat again. And the silence of the tomb was broken with a heartbeat and an inhale. And his heart began to pump blood to the organs and to his brain. He began to think again. His eyes opened. He saw again. He began to hear. He began to smell sure he could smell the aroma of the myrrh and the aloe and he really came back to life so as we step into chapter 20 of the gospel of john we find mary at the tomb but what she's come for is not to find out if he's still there she's not showing up to see if he actually came back to life she's showing up with some extra spices to make sure that he was buried properly she knows that on Friday it was a race against the time to get his body from Pilate, get it prepared, get him in the tomb before sundown. And so she's coming bringing spices to make sure that, that Jesus, her Lord, her rabbi, her teacher, has been buried properly. And so when she encounters that the stone is rolled away, immediately her heart begins to race and she begins to run. She goes and she finds the disciples to report that the stone has been moved and the tomb is empty. Now, from her perspective, Jesus hasn't resurrected. What is she thinking? Somebody has stole the body, so think about that, right? It's, it's tragedy trumped with more tragedy. She's already grieving the loss of, of Jesus, this one who she had, she had staked everything on him. He was going to be the one to save the world, and he's now dead, and she's grieving that loss, only to show up at the graveyard or the garden to find what? Somebody has stole him has literally stole his body. And she, so she goes with grief and, and anxiety and panic and, and just all these deep emotions and goes and she finds the disciples and says what? Hey guys, the tomb is empty. Somebody has stolen his body. And then John and Peter trip over themselves and take off running. 
back to the tomb. Now, we find out from John's perspective that he's a little faster than Peter. And so as they come running up to the tomb, there's the tomb. The stone is, is rolled away, and evidently this was a really big tomb because you can go in and stand up inside. John stops. Peter blows right by him and goes in the tomb first. And so we're going to pick this up in verse 8 with John's perspective on the resurrection. And where we're going to start is we're going to start with the significance of the resurrection from, from a biblical perspective, from a theological perspective. And where we're going to land is in the very intimate place and the relational connection between the resurrection of Jesus and even our own lives. So in verse 8, we read that then the other disciple, which is the way John refers to himself when he's writing his gospel, he's the other disciple, or he's the disciple in which Jesus loved, this is John, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. So this is the moment that John is writing about, saying this is the moment that I actually believe. When I ran into this empty tomb, followed Peter in, and I saw with my own eyes linens laying on the ground, a folded up face cloth on the side, the tomb was empty, this is when I saw, and this is when I believed. Because up until this point, or is the way he puts it, for as yet they, he's including himself in the they, we did not understand. Understand what? The scriptures. This is a really important thing to think about. What is John trying to communicate to us about his belief? First of all, I think John's going to be clear. There are different degrees of belief. Okay? So if we go all the way back to John chapter 2, Jesus' first public miracle, which is where he, tr he transferred water into wine. He miraculously changed water into wine at a wedding. And this was his first public sign that he is the Messiah. Listen to this. This is in John 2, verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. He made his glory known. And his disciples believed in him. There was a certain degree of belief that caused these disciples to leave behind their jobs, their family, their friends, and to take off following this rabbi who claimed to be the Messiah. So it's not that they didn't believe on some level, what John is saying, but it wasn't until I saw the empty tomb that I really got it, that I really believed that Jesus is the Messiah. We go back through the Gospel of John. I did some just rereading this week on how significant this theme of belief is to John in his understanding of who Jesus is. And over 80 times in the Gospel of John, John indicates that this belief in Jesus as the resurrected Savior is necessary for salvation. It's necessary for eternal life. It's necessary to have a relationship with God. Here's a few of them that you may even be familiar with. John chapter 3, verse 16. Somebody in the room probably has this tattooed on your skin somewhere. It's a very, very popular verse. What does it say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever does what? Believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is a really important theme for John as he's unfolding the gospel for us. And he's also telling about his own journey with belief. 
at the wedding in Canaan, he saw a miracle and he believed enough to follow Jesus, but not enough to trust Jesus with his life. It wasn't until the resurrection that that belief became something that he would say, this is the moment I truly believed. In uh, John 5, Jesus is having a dialogue with some Jews and some religious leaders, and he's talking about their belief. This is what John 5 records. Jesus says, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me. What does Jesus mean by that? So Moses is the, the accredited author of the first five books of your Bible. Okay? And so as Jesus refers to believing in Moses, what he's talking about is you, you believe the writings of Moses, then you would believe me. Look at what he says. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about what? Me. He wrote about me, but if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So Jesus is saying there's a connection bet between believing Jesus' words and believing the scriptures that are written. Now, what I want you to understand is, so John, when he's writing this gospel, so if, if this is a timeline up here in front of you, I'll start over here. Here's the wedding. There's this miracle, water to wine. John's like, yeah, there's something about this guy. God's with this guy. God's behind him. I believe that God has his hands on this guy, so I'm going to follow him. And with each sign and with each miracle, John's faith, his belief is growing. It's at the resurrection, right, that he says, that's when, like, I saw it and, like, I believe believed it. And that belief was concreted in for the rest of my life. Now, past that moment is when he's writing this gospel. I want you to think about that. So he's looking back on the miracle of the wedding. He's saying, like, that was a big deal, but that's not where I truly trusted Christ as my Messiah, my Savior. It was the resurrection. And then look at what John says as he wraps up his gospel in chapter 20. He says in verse 31, All of this is written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So what is it that John is calling us to believe in? He's calling us, first of all, to believe the scriptures. That's what he says at the resurrection. It wasn't until I saw the empty tomb that I understood the scriptures and believed. So there's something about the scriptures we need to figure out. It's also the words of Jesus himself. What did Jesus claim about himself? What about this empty tomb fulfills whatever Jesus said about himself to where John would go, not only do I believe in a Messiah, I believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And then this third piece of the puzzle that we're going to talk about today is the resurrection itself. We're going to see that while for John, belief came pretty quick, for Mary it didn't. It's going to take her a while to get to that point of believing in the resurrection as a real historical event. So John calls us to believe. So we did some work around this this week, trying to figure out, okay, so what scriptures is John talking about? He sees an empty tomb. He's like, oh, now I understand the Bible. Now I understand the Old Testament. It all makes sense to me now. And one of the things that, that I did this week was look at how these disciples told this story after this point in time. And if you go to the book of Acts, you're going to find record of a lot of the first sermons about Jesus. And it's interesting because 
Peter and Paul, who are the primary speakers or preachers in the book of Acts, are going to point back to the resurrection as the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. There's a connection there. And what's interesting is that they both point to Psalm 16. Now, what you may or may not know about Psalm 16, it was a psalm written by David. Remember David? The shepherd boy who became a king, the man after God's own heart, who writes down almost like a journaling, like a prayer journal, he writes down the psalms for us. So we can know what he's thinking about, what he's feeling, and how he takes those things to God. When Psalm 16, uh, David makes a comment. It almost sounds like a prayer. Whenever when he says this, he says that let not your holy one see corruption. Okay, it comes out of Psalm 16, and the assumption would be is that that what David's saying, he's praying that for himself. Oh dear God, I've been through a lot of persecution as your holy one. Please look favorably upon your holy one and let not your holy one see corruption. But we get to the book of Acts and Peter's preaching. He refers to that passage and he goes, hey, that wasn't about David. That was about Jesus. And we get to Acts 13. Look at what Paul says about that psalm. He says, therefore, this is Peter preaching. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, which is Psalm 16, you will not let your holy one see corruption. And then, and then Peter, uh, excuse me, Paul unpacks it for us he says for david after he served the purpose of god in his own generation fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw what corruption so what paul is saying there in this sermon is that as david wrote that he wasn't talking about himself how do we know that because david saw corruption meaning he died and was buried and didn't come back to life and then uh, Paul continues, verse 37, he says, But he whom God raised up, which is who? Jesus did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And I love 39. And by him, everyone who believes, hear that word again? Listen to this, this is huge, is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Man, that's a big statement. So one of the struggles that we have in our human nature is to separate sin from suffering. To separate our behavior motives from those of others and things that have been done to us. Okay? And it's like this vicious web of sin and suffering that we experience in our humanity. And one of the ways it comes out is this, is I see this oftentimes in like counseling or discipleship, is somebody's talking about a moral failure where they've sinned or disobeyed God. Oftentimes one of the first things we do is we connect it to what somebody else has done to us. Right? You know what I'm talking about, right? We blame shift. Like, yes, I did this, but she did this. He said that. This happened to me. And here's, here's the truth. Yes to both. Right? Because suffering begets more suffering. Sin begets more sin. And those two things intermix in our lives. There's a, there's a really good chance every human being in here has, has committed a sin out of your own fallen nature. And it's nobody else's fault but yours. And there's an appropriate amount of guilt that accompanies that. And there's a sin that you have committed that is a response or a reaction to something that somebody else has done to you. 
both are true. But one of the things that happens once we feel the appropriate amount of guilt is we start adding to that a lot of shame on top of ourselves, right? And so then we're like, I can't bear the weight of this. This can't be my fault because if it's my fault, I don't want to live anymore. And so then we'll shift the blame. It's because of so-and-so. And so it's really difficult to pull those two things apart in the human experience. Here's what you have to understand. And Hebrews chapter 10 is so helpful. In the book of Hebrews chapter 10, the author explains how the, the law was not sufficient to fix us. The only thing the law was really good at doing, and it's still good at doing this today, is to show us where we're broken, show us where we fail. The law works like a mirror, okay? If you want to know where you're failing in life, you go read the Ten Commandments, and then go read the Sermon on the Mount, and you're going to go, whoa, I've really messed up. And the law is going to show you where you failed and where you are broken, but it can't do anything to fix you, okay? So Hebrews chapter 10 says this, that the people of God, year after year, living by the law, were constantly reminded of their brokenness, of their failure, of their sin, with no remedy. And the only chance they had at remedy was to butcher animals. And so year after year, they would sacrifice animals on behalf of their sins, but it never fixed the problem. It left us broken on the inside, and that's contrasted with what Jesus has done as the perfect sacrifice. He doesn't just come as a sacrifice to remove our guilt. He has come in some capacity to fix what's broken inside of us. And that's how he's different from the law of Moses. So what Paul is saying in Acts 13 when he says this, and by him, who's him? Not just Jesus, Jesus who has been resurrected. Jesus who has risen from death. By him, everyone who believes, listen, is freed from what from everything from which you could not be free by the law of moses that's big that's big we'll start with sin you have been set free from bondage to sin you have been set free from the shame and guilt of sin whether you did it on your own ambitions or as a reaction to somebody else's sin towards you you're set free from both that's good news but please understand, don't miss this part of the cross. What Jesus experienced in his death for you is the greatest degree of suffering that a human can experience. The greatest degree of humiliation. The greatest degree of betrayal, loneliness, sadness, physical pain, anger. Jesus experienced the greatest degree of suffering on our behalf so that all of our suffering is under that not to minimize your suffering but you have a savior who says i understand your suffering i suffered with you and you can't bring anything to me that i would look at and go yeah i don't get that he suffered to the greatest degree now listen if that's all he has done he would make a great comforter but you and I would still be broken in our sin and suffering. This is why the resurrection is so important. He experienced the greatest degree of suffering on our behalf, listen to me, and he won. By that I mean, and he lived on, and he lived again. So that in our suffering, right, it, suffering is hard. 
right? If we're going to be honest, suffering hurts. Suffering makes us feel alone. Like nobody gets where I'm at and I'm just alone. And suffering, like, nobody likes suffering. But Jesus meets you in your suffering to say to you, and you will live again. You will live after this. You will live beyond this. And so when Paul says that through the resurrection, Jesus sets us free from everything that the law of Moses couldn't set us free from, that's what he's talking about. He sets you free from bondage and shame and the horrific, hopeless pain of sin and suffering so that in your suffering, in your grieving, as Paul says in Thessalonians, you grieve with hope. You grieve different from the way the rest of the world grieves. You hurt different from the way the rest of the world hurts. You know, even if you can't see it, there's purpose in pain, right? And healing follows wounds. And so this reference to the scriptures being fulfilled in the resurrection of Jesus is more than just a historical God saying, see, told you. It's God meeting us in a deep theological place to say, listen, I'm going un- to undo the curse of sin and death. And to undo it, I have to die, be buried, so that you know I'm dead, and then I'll overcome what you can't overcome. And I'll do it for you. That's the power of the resurrection. That's where the resurrection meets us on Monday. That's where it meets you in the difficulty of the week that lies ahead. That's where the resurrection meets you as you walk into this space with deep needs. Needs that you haven't even expressed to anybody. And we're going to see where the resurrection falls on us incredibly intimately and personal as we look at Mary's response. Jesus himself in John chapter 2 indicated that the resurrection was necessary. So listen to this. This is John 2. This is right after this miracle at the wedding. Verse 18, the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And if you don't know anything about the Jews, they were incredibly protective of their temple. (laughs) Like, incredibly protective. So they freak out. The Jews said to him, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it in three days? Now who's writing this? John. He's writing it after the resurrection. He now understands who Jesus is and what he did. And look at what he says. Verse 21. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. I get it now. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. That's what John, that's what's happening to John's empty tomb. Wow, I get it now. I get it. I believe. Now for Mary, the experience was a little bit different. Her grief is compounded with more grief, right? The grief of losing this person she had put all of her trust in. Now he's been killed and just humiliated and tortured and like, she was there. She saw all that. And not only that, she's not quite sure if he got a proper burial. Can you imagine the motivation to come back on the third day to like, I'm just going to make sure, like, I'm just going to make sure Jesus got, like, I care about him that much. That's a big deal. 
she comes and she sees the tomb is empty and she's freaking out because she thinks somebody stole the body of Jesus. Not like somebody stole her purse, but like somebody stole the body of a loved one kind of grief. Like, it's hard for me to fathom what Mary is experiencing right now. John and Peter are excited. Mary's not. And look at how John describes it. Verse, let's do verse 10. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. So this is not a description of somebody who's sad and there's a tear rolling down her face. She's experiencing this violent turbulence of grief on the inside. You know what I mean? The kind of grief that's like, it's physical pain. You feel it in your throat, you feel it in your face. She's weeping violently and turbulently over this situation. And so she's standing there weeping, and she stoops down to look inside the tomb. Verse 12 says she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. One at the head and one at the feet. I'm going to stop right here. So even before the angels showed up, if Mary would have been of clear mind and not just emotionally charged, she could have started thinking logically. Wait a second. If somebody had stole the body, they wouldn't have left the linens here. They would have left him wrapped up, right? Unless they need to just need to know to make sure it was the right body, they would have maybe uncovered his face and went, yep, that's him. And then, but not only were the linens left there, but the, the, the covering over his face, what, what do we know about it? It was folded nice and neat. Who steals a body and does that? Nobody, right? So there's evidence that would indicate Jesus' body wasn't stolen. Now we've got angels, right? So what does that help us know? Well, God's involved in this, right? Something is happening bigger than me, bigger than human invention. There's angels here, and she still hasn't figured it out. So she sees the angels, verse 13, they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she tells us, she said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. That's what she's grieving. Bad enough they killed him, now they've stolen him, and I don't know where his body is. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know it was him. Because she, she wasn't looking for him. So she, she sees Jesus standing there, and she didn't know it's him. Verse 15 says, he says to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Let me stop again. You ever had one of those moments where the emotional lid just comes off? Like you just, you're at your limit. It's like, whatever happens next, I'm not in control of. Parents, you know what I'm talking about, right? <laughs> now think of all this emotion is welling up in her. To fully kind of get your mind wrapped around what we're about to read. Like it's all boiling up in her. And she, she assumes that Jesus is a gardener and that he's the one who took the body. Listen to what she says. Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and then I will take him away. 
I feel like she's about to punch the gardener in the face. Right? I mean, hurt, pain, grief, anger. You just tell me where you put him. And that's her approach to Jesus, which, one, lets us know how much she loves Jesus, but it also lets us know that she doesn't get it yet, right? Jesus is going to say one word to her. One word. And she's going to say one word back to him. Jesus said to her, Mary. This is not the way that a parent says to a child their name when they're in trouble. Hudson. Hudson right there you know that tone of voice don't you yeah it's not even the way you might say somebody's name if you see them in a crowd and it's a friend jason hey this is the kind of this is the way that a person says somebody's name because they want you to look up at them and see them moment between Jesus and Mary. She didn't need what John and Peter needed, all the scriptures and the theological background and all the evidence and all those sorts of things. She just needed to hear Jesus meet her in her grief and her emotion. He could have said, hey, what are you yelling at me for? No. He saw through all of her anger and her grief and he just said, to understand so you've already said you may have come in today hoping to hear something that would indicate God sees your needs and he wants to meet you there and you probably didn't come in today thinking man I really hope that we hear a sermon on the resurrection because if I can hear that it'll help me in this need but what we're seeing is that the resurrection is the place where God meets us in our greatest need Regardless of why you've come today, this is where Jesus wants to meet you. To say your name. Hey, it's me. Kevin, I'm hurting God. I'm lonely God. I'm sad God. I'm angry God. I'm grieving God. I'm and God just says, hey, I want to see through all that. And he wants to say your name and just look up at you. Like, that's your Savior. That's the God who died on the cross for your sins and rose from the grave. He's a God who says your name to let you know that he sees your suffering and he meets you there. He says your name. And he said to her, Mary, and she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Adonai, it's you. It's me. It's you. Now, she evidently loses her emotional lid and just (laughs) because now what he's going to say is hey I love that you're like but you're going to have to let go of me because there's this whole ascension thing coming 
and I promise you're not going to be grabbing a hold of me when I ascend. It's not going to be fun. So he says to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to, now listen to this, I am ascending to my Father, but look at what he says that's now unique, and your Father. Remember last week? Over 96 references to the relationship between the Son and the Father, between Jesus and his Father. And now he's saying to Mary, I'm ascending to my Father, and oh, by the way, your Father, to my God, and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord. I have seen him. And now he says these things to her. Now I want to end here with this thing that Jesus says to her that I think is incredibly important. This wording, my father, your father, my God, your God, is really significant to the full message of the Bible itself. It's, it's a reminder of this relationship that Adam and Eve had with God in the garden, this intimate relationship where God dwelt with man. And when Adam looked at God, there wasn't any indication except for that's my God and I'm his. When Eve looks at God, that's my God, that's my Heavenly Father, I'm his daughter. And after the fall, that gets, that gets corrupted and broken and distorted. So God speaks in the Old Testament in really beautiful prophetic ways. And one of the most profound places in the Bible where God addresses this is in the book of Hosea. God uses a living metaphor of a marriage between a faithful husband and an unfaithful wife to illustrate God's love for his people and the relationship between God, who's represented by this this, this faithful husband, Hosea, and his people who are rep represented by this unfaithful wife. And they have children. And initially, God tells Hosea, you're going to give these children some really tacky names. I want you to name, name your first kid, No Mercy. Then you're going to name another one, Not My Children, which are, would all be right within Hosea's rights, right? His wife was unfaithful. This may not even be my children. No mercy, not mine. What's beautiful, though, is that in the, in the book of Hosea, God flips this on Hosea to illustrate how God flips it on us. I'm just going to read um, one verse from Hosea. It's the second half of chapter 2, 23. And this is the beautiful promise that I think Jesus is getting at with Mary. And so this is what God says. He says, and I will have mercy on no mercy. See how it's capital letters? That's her name. I'm going to show mercy to the kid who deserves the name No Mercy. And then look at what he says. And I will say to not my people, which is the name of one of his other kids, you are my people and they shall say what? To the most unfaithful among us, God says to you, you are my people. To those of us who don't deserve mercy, God says, yep, guess what? I'm going to flip the script on you, and I'm going to show you mercy. And what's beautiful about this promise in Hosea is it comes to fruition in the book of Revelation, and the description of God's people in Revelation is one of every tribe, every language, every ethnicity, every nationality, every color of skin, all just coming together, and it says like this roaring water, like this river that's out of control, flooding into the kingdom of God. You talk about things like racial reconciliation. Yes, the gospel. It's the resurrection of Jesus. 
That's where it happens. Hey, listen, we're all not, uh, not my people. Right? What do you mean, you people? We're all the undeserving children, the illegitimate, undeserving children of the kingdom. And God says, I'm going to go to you who are not my children. I'm going to say to you, you are now my child. I'm going to come to you who don't deserve mercy, and I'm going to call you mercy. From every tribe, every language, every tongue, every color of skin, every background, all together, my children. And I believe this is echoing here when God says, when Jesus says to Mary, I'm getting ready to ascend to my father. Oh, by the way, he's your father too. I'm getting ready to ascend back to my rightful place with God. Oh, by the way, he's your God too. That's where we're going to land today. And I want to just maybe ask a couple of questions for you to think about. And I think it would be, I think it would be wrong of me not to ask these questions. I never want to encourage a person to doubt unnecessarily. Okay? So I'm not trying to get you to doubt, but here's the thing. Maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian or you're not quite sure. I would say this. If you have not come to the place where you personally have wrestled with the reality of the resurrection and believed in it, you aren't yet a Christian. And maybe even some of us here today or some people listening online would, would call yourself a Christian, and yet you have not yet wrestled with the reality and the truth of the resurrection. So yeah, but I believe, but I just haven't believed in that yet. I would put you in the category of the disciples in John chapter 2. You believe in a God who can perform miracles. You believe in a God who's, who's worth following for a while, but you haven't come to the place of putting your life in his hands, trusting him. Okay? So I want to just leave you with that challenge. And my prayer for you today is that if you find, if that's you, and you're like, hey, I have not come to that place where I've really believed the resurrection is real, and I'm putting my trust in the one who's been resurrected, then my hope for you, without, without any apologies, is that you would make that decision today. Okay? Before you leave here. Whenever we ask our prayer partners to come forward, not just because that's what we do, they're here for you. Um, out in the commons, we have our elders out in the commons after the service. They're going to be wearing lanyards, so you'll know who they are. After the last service, elders were all over the place talking and praying with people. It was such a sweet sight, and so we want to do that again. If that's you, like we want to pray with you, we want to know what God's speaking to you, and we want to help you make that decision, okay? If you want to stand and like just sing with all your, you know, maybe you can clap. You guys know clapping's biblical, right? Clapping in rhythm is better, but clapping in general is biblical. I just want to throw it out there. All right, so you feel like you want to clap? Clap. You want to sing? Sing. If you want to just pray, pray. If you want to stay silent and just contemplate how God's speaking to you, we want you to do that as well. So I'm going to pray. Worship team's coming back out, and we're going to respond. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for the power of the resurrection and what it means for each of us. Like the resurrection is the the kingpin to everything that we believe. It's the place where all of the Old Testament promises find their fulfillment. It's the point in which everything that Jesus claimed about his life to be true comes true. And it's the place, Jesus, where you meet each of us to individually say our names, to invite us 
into this faith-infused relationship with you. Jesus, we believe that you resurrected from the grave, that your body was at one point dead and it came back to life. We also believe that through the resurrection, that is where you set us free from sin and suffering. It's where you meet us in our hardest moments to say you will live again. So Jesus, now as we get ready to stand and to sing and to celebrate all that we have in you, I know others of us are still wrestling with some things, and so I'm praying in the same way that you met with Mary that you would meet with us now. We pray this in your name. Amen.